This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 89 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is Gloria Steinem, who has been a leader of the feminist movement for a half century and who today, at 82, is continuing the fight in many ways, not least of all through the Viceland series Woman with Gloria Steinem, which highlights how violence against women drives global instability. The show's eight-episode first season, on which she served as executive producer and host, has been nominated for the Emmy for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Series, and, like so many of Steinem's endeavors over the years, has sparked important dialogue and change all around the world. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about a wide range of topics. Among them, how this second-wave feminist came to learn and care about the efforts of the first-wave feminist before her, how she personally was impacted by the patriarchy of American society as she came of age, and how her work as a journalist led to her becoming an activist, the circumstances surrounding her landmark 1963 expose about the treatment of Playboy bunnies, her work to help establish Ms. Magazine in 1971, and the resistance to her efforts inside and outside of the movement from some, largely due to her beauty, how Vice, a network associated with macho men, came to host Woman, how the series came together and what its impact has been, and a wide assortment of issues related to the present day, from Hollywood gender inequality and the Nate Parker situation, to the Kardashians and the Real Housewives, to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and the list goes on. I can't tell you what a privilege it was to spend an hour with this woman, who has given and continues to give her life to a cause that impacts every one of our lives, regardless of our gender. So, without further ado, let's take a listen. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you. And to begin with, we always ask, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Toledo, Ohio. And the second question is harder to answer. <laughs> I, I gathered from your memoir. <laughs> yeah. My father always had a dream, but it, they were a wide variety of dreams, I would say. And his two points of big pride were that he never wore a hat, which in his generation one was supposed to do, and, and he never had a job, by which he meant he worked for himself. Right. So he was buying and selling antiques and jewelry and sometimes in and out of a kind of show business with the summer resort. And my mother had been, long before I was born, a pioneer journalist. And I'm sorry to say, gave that up. And I think that was hard on her. And so the result of their life courses was that you were on the road for most of your childhood, not in school for any regular amount of time. How do you think all of that shaped the person who you became? I don't know about you, but I thought I was rebelling against my childhood and then later on discovered that it had reemerged. <laughs> because the whole time I was not in school, I kind of wanted to go to school like the other kids yeah. and you know, live in a house with a four-poster bed and a pony. <laughs> right, right. But I think I learned from my father how important it was to do something from which you can't be fired. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. <laughs> And that prepared me well for the financial uncertainty, first of being a freelance writer, and then of being in a social justice movement, where you really need some people who can't be fired. Right, right. So I believe when you were 10, your parents separated, and at that point, you really became a caretaker for your mother in a way. You've written about her wandering in the street and just things that must have been very upsetting to see. And I just wonder if you can share what your conclusions were about what drove her to that state, because I think it's sort of applicable to things that you got into later. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent a long time saying, as I'm sure many people do, I'm not going to be anything like my mother or my father, you know, because we're trying to preserve ourselves from their fate. And then slowly you realize that it wasn't her fault. It was society and circumstances, and I really later on identified with her and realized how alike we were and how much I learned from her love of writing and, you know, just really how, how how alike we are. So when she was being depressed and did spend a couple of years in a mental hospital, I asked the doctors there, they said, she had an anxiety neurosis. And I said, would you say that her spirit was broken? And they said, yes. And what do you think had caused that to be the case? I think that pretty much everything she cared about was taken away from her, not because my father was a bad person, he was a good person, but just because of the way the world worked. Meaning she would have liked to have had a career of her own. Yes, she used to tell me how she, later on, she told me how she wanted to go to New York with her girlfriend and try to be a journalist here. And she had all of these dreams. But by that time, she was married with a child, my sister, who's Mm -hmm. nine years older. She also fell in love with a man at her newspaper office. And 
maybe the guy she should have married instead of my father. They were nice people, but very different, yeah. right? And, she, and that was just unacceptable. So she detached herself from everything she loved and cared about, and I think that was very hard on her. So for you, when did you first become aware of, I don't know if it was the word or just the concept of feminism, were you someone who knew about the first waivers before you ever even got involved with the movement yourself? No, I wasn't. I knew very little. I was attracted to things as a little girl, like Little Women, you know, which happens to be a book in which the daughters and the mother are concerned about the real world and the Civil War and make a, a real community of mm -hmm. people. So I was drawn to, to places that treated female people as human beings. I was reading both Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I knew that women had got the vote, but that seemed long ago, yeah. and it didn't seem relevant to my life. It really was quite a while before I began to realize that I could rebel publicly, not just secretly, <laughs> as an individual. <laughs> and when you did become aware of the fact that there were other people, even in your own era, who were doing this, Simone de Beauvoir, Betty Friedan, these were people that were just shortly before you, right? Mm -hmm. Were you hearing the counter-arguments that were very loudly being made at that time about, you know, these women are bitter, or they're anti-sex, or they're man-haters, or whatever the, the counter-narrative was that time? Were you, were you aware that there was a sort of back and forth? Yes, I was, but I didn't quite identify with those two women yet, no fault of theirs, but just because, I mean, Betty Friedan was talking about women living in the suburbs wanting to get back, get into the labor force and use their college educations. I was already in the labor force yeah. and being badly treated, so yeah. I thought, okay, I support them, but that isn't going to help me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and Simone de Beauvoir seemed to me such an elevated intellectual creature <laughs> that I couldn't quite identify. So it was really much more a combination of rebellious women and the civil rights movement and everything that began to say, wait a minute, you know, this yeah. whole idea of labels of sex and race and hierarchy is just not right. It's just not right. You know, we're all unique individuals and we can be who we are. And seeing women act on that, whether it was Shirley Chisholm or Alice Walker or I don't know, just so many, yeah. countless women. That was inspiring to me. When you went to Smith College, was that formative for you in a, in a way to be around all women? You know, in retrospect, it was, it was helpful because we, I was in a classroom with all women, and I think given the atmosphere of the 50s, had I been in a classroom that was equally men, I would not have been so likely to speak up. And might have gotten married and gone the traditional path, right? I, no, I don't think I you would have wouldn't done have, You were even then knew you, that wasn't <laughs> well, for you. I, no, I just, I thought it was for me, but I was putting it off. Yeah. I'm doing that, just not right, right now. That was, right. was putting it off why you went to India after yes, college? Yes, it was definitely why I went to India, because I was engaged in my senior year in college to a very, very kind, funny, tempting man. Yeah. So. I realized I had to go very far away. <laughs> <laughs> I ask this next question only because you write about it in the dedication of mm -hmm. your memoir. It seems like it was a turning point in your life. What did you discover when you were en route 
to India, and how do you think that shaped things that followed? Yes, no, well, when I, when I got to London and was working as a waitress while I was waiting for my visa, yeah. which uh, was very delayed, I discovered, as I feared when I left but didn't quite believe that I was pregnant. So I did spend quite a long time desperately trying to figure out what to do about that. You know, should I throw myself downstairs, ride horse? I mean, all these dumb things, you know, that you think, right? Yeah. And I just had the great good luck to find in the phone book a doctor who was compassionate and kind and finally said to me, all right, you know, you just, just promise me two things. You will never tell anyone my name and you will do what you want to do with your life. And I'm so grateful to him. You know, we, we ought to be able to give birth to ourselves before we give birth to someone else, or at least whether or not we want to give birth to someone else. We need women and men to give birth to ourselves. And so for you, the process of giving birth to yourself really in some ways required you to go off on your own when you came back from India and go to New York like somebody who I believe you admired a lot, Holly Golightly. Yes. And, and so now you're there, and, and the goal was, the dream was just to have a career as a journalist? Yes. Uh, it was just, I don't know, I felt attracted to New York even before I knew what New York was. It seemed a place of freedom mm -hmm. and diversity, and I became a freelance writer, which was a little hard on the finances, but, <laughs> but it was an adventure, and at least I could pursue learning. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I could interview James Baldwin, or I, you know, I could follow campaigns, even though that was more difficult because women didn't write politics that much. And also, I became part of a group of writers that started New York Magazine. Yes. And that was really the beginning of being able to write about what I cared about. Is it true that when you got to New York, you shared an apartment with pre-love story Ali McGraw? That's true, you, yes. You just coincidentally worked out, that, or did you guys well, know each no, other? Well, no, I was Barbara Nessam, a wonderful artist, and I yes. were roommates. Yeah. And Ali McGraw was a friend. So when she was in between boyfriends, she came to stay with us. And I can't begin to tell you how great it was to have her as a roommate because no matter what she does, she looks great. Yeah. It's, she's like a cat. It's like right. having a great, beautiful cat to watch. That's so funny. <laughs> and then the other thing was that before I ask you about any specifics of, of your time as a journalist, you were thrown into the deep end of the misogyny and some of the nonsense pretty much immediately. I'm reading, I was sad to read that Gay Talese was one of the people that was a practitioner of this. Can you explain the kind of stuff that you had to deal with writing under men's bylines, like fake under other people's names? And I didn't, unlike my mother, who yeah. did write under a man's name, ah, okay. I, I didn't do that, but I just couldn't get political assignments very easily. And I remember being sent by my literary agent to Life magazine, and the editor looked up at me as I entered and said, we don't want a pretty girl, we want a writer, go home. And that was it. How do you even answer something like <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, well, you just go home. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it was very difficult. And, you know, the funny thing about the episode in the book with Gay Talese where, you know, it's maybe too complicated to explain, but he's essentially saying in my presence yeah. to Saul Bellow 
you know, there's the pretty girl who, ever, who comes to New York every year and pretends to be a writer. Gloria's this year's pretty girl. And I should have objected at the moment, but I was so stunned. And yeah. also, I had just interviewed Saul Bellows. So I was afraid that he would regret that he had given me an interview. I did not fact check that with him because I knew it was true and I was not sure he would agree. The New Yorker fact checked it with him when they did a piece about the book that included that. And he said, yeah. He didn't even <laughs> deny it. Now, to be fair to him, maybe he thought that saying I was a pretty girl was a compliment. I don't know. Probably did, but it's still treating you like you're not there. Yeah, right. So I guess watching Mad Men must have felt like you were reliving some of the... I don't know if you did watch Mad Men. I did but, watch Mad yeah. Men, no, and I, th I thought it was brilliant, although not as bad as it really was. Really? Wow. <laughs> so the piece of journalism that, from what I understand, really brought you to prominence for the first time in a big way was the June 63 piece for Show Magazine about 11 days undercover as a Playboy bunny. And I just am curious how that came about and whether the response to it was more positive or negative in the immediate... I mean, it's certainly you were known, but were you known in the way that you wanted to be known? Were people interpreting it the way you wanted it mm -hmm. to be interpreted? It came about because I was working for, as a freelancer, Show Magazine, which was a big, beautiful arts magazine of the time, and sitting in an editorial meeting because the Playboy Club was about to open, I said, why don't we send Lillian Ross? I don't know if you yeah, happen to know her work, but she's a wonderful writer for The New Yorker to be a bunny. This was an impractical <laughs> suggestion because she was way too old and right. too smart to do that. Right. <laughs> but she had such an eye for detail, I thought it would be lethal, you yeah. know, to send her. And there was this little silence and they said, ah, you do it. I objected at first, but then I thought, no, I really need the money. And besides, I'll only be able to write about the auditions because they'll never hire me. You have to have legal identity to serve liquor in New York or to work, you know. But they were so desperate that they never really wow. looked for any <laughs> authentication. Right. So I did end up working for a while. It's a really mixed bag for me because I hope and believe that what I wrote improved the conditions, the working conditions of the bunnies. As an example, Hefner said he would call off the fact that they were required to have an internal gynecological exam, which he had, <laughs> which they were told was necessary to serve oh food in New God. York State. Was I he mean, performing it? <laughs> no, he was a doctor. But yeah. I mean, it just you can't make this up. No. So I believe that I improved their yeah. working conditions. The club also sued me for. I mean, nothing happened, but yeah. I mean, it was you know, kind of an elaborate problem. So I, I'm basically glad I did it. But I do notice that now, as old as I am, <laughs> people still introduce me as an ex-bunny, and especially oh. if they don't like me, if oh. they disagree. Right. They don't, you know, they don't oh, get well, the Oh, well, she only came to fit. Right. Oh. right. <laughs> well, just a couple months later, I, I read that you were in D.C. the day of the I Have a Dream speech, the March on Washington, and that another sort of event happened there that was an awakening for you of a, of a sort? Yes, I just, I, I had no real reason to be there. I just was magnetized yeah. by, to, to be there. And I happened to be marching in this huge mass ocean of people next to uh, a woman and her daughter, her grown-up daughter. And when she, an African-American woman herself, 
looked at the platform, she kept saying, where are the women? You know, where is Fannie Lou Hamer? Why is Dorothy Hyde not speaking? And it was such a revelation to me because I had just accepted what was there. And it's also symbolic in an important way because African-American women were way more supportive of feminist issues and way more likely, statistically speaking, to be doing that kind of work. And yet they don't get credit for it. You know, they're rendered invisible. People even call the whole movement white and middle class, which just was not true. Yeah. Is it true that you were in the White House three months after that when President Kennedy left for the last time? It's true. How, yeah. what, was, what brought you there? I, I was doing research for an article that I think was for the Ladies' Home Journal or something. Yeah. It was about style in the White House. I don't know. Yeah. So I was sitting there in Ted Sorensen's office. Yeah. Ted was a friend, and he, of course, was a wonderful speechwriter yeah, for President Kennedy. Just doing research, and he, I watched him run the speech pages out to President Kennedy, who was entering a helicopter with all the whirling blades and wind of the helicopter on the White House lawn. And of course, that was the last time. Yeah, unbelievable. You mentioned New York Magazine. I think it was 1968 when you joined the editorial board. And what led then three years later to the creation of Ms., which I think was not even, initially it was just an insert, right? What Was that something that you felt you had really pushed for? And and why was Clay Felker open to this? Well, Clay Felker was a great journalist, so yeah. he knew something was happening out there. Yeah. He had a good nose for news. <laughs> yeah. However, he was going to do an issue about the women's movement, with the theme of which was if there were just more imported domestic workers, then you wouldn't need a movement because women would have help. I mean, he just didn't quite get it. He knew there was something <laughs> happening. <laughs> right. He got halfway there. Right. Yeah. And... Meantime, we had started a group that was just trying to give out information on this burgeoning movement. We were trying to make money from it. And so we were going to start a newsletter. Then we discovered that newsletters don't make money unless they are stock tips or something. So we realized we should start a magazine. And also we wanted to work for a magazine we actually read. And Clay, to his credit put a sample of the first issue, 30 pages of the first 130 pages, in his year-end New York magazine, a special feature, and also printed the whole sample issue of 130 pages. You know, we didn't get paid, but he was paying for actually doing this, which was great of him to do. And because that first preview issue sold out and just a little over a week, even though we had cover dated it spring yeah. in January because yeah. we thought it was going to lie there on the newsstands right. and embarrass <laughs> us for a long time. <laughs> it made us know there was a huge, hungry audience out there, and that enabled us to raise money and start Ms. Magazine. The word Ms. was not known to everyone at that point, right? Why was that the title that you and your colleagues chose to name this? Well, we had a lot of other ones. We were going to call it Sojourner, after Sojourner Truth, but people thought it was a travel magazine. (laughs) Then we were going to call it Sisters, but they thought it was a religious magazine. (laughs) So we found in secretarial handbooks from the 1950s, MS, Ms., as a way of dealing with a disaster in which you didn't know whether it was a Miss or a Mrs. Now, later on, it turned out that the Ms. as a term 
was very oh, centuries old and was in the Oxford English Dictionary because it was an abbreviation for, you know, mistress or master, you would say for English children, for instance, and MS was an abbreviation. That, Interesting. Right. So, but we didn't know that at the time. Yeah. So we thought, okay, this is a solution to women's inevitable situation of being asked if they're married or not just to buy an airline ticket. Right. And also it's short for a logo, so it leaves a lot of space on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) And and took off. Now, did you personally not marry until your 60s because you felt that marriage was antithetical to feminism or it just happened to be the way things went? Well, I think there's, to be honest about it, it changes over time. You know, in the beginning, pre-feminism, I thought that marriage was the only life-changing mechanism a woman had. Once you married, then you were living his life and leading your children's Mm -hmm. life. This made marriage seem a lot like death. Yeah. (laughs) So so I kept putting it off. It seemed like it was my last choice. Right. So I was in my mid-30s, and then the feminist movement came along, and suddenly I realized not everyone had to live in the same way. And I discovered I was happy. Yeah. So... You didn't need it. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I wasn't. And also, at that point, if I had wanted to get married, it would have been hard because the laws were so unjust. I would have lost my legal name, my credit rating, you know, most of my civil rights. By the time I actually got married, 30 years later, we had worked 30 years to change the laws. So you did not lose your civil rights. Yeah. At that age, there was really, I mean, you know, we loved each other and we wanted to be together. We wouldn't have thought, I don't think, about getting legally married, except that he was had been born in South Africa and needed a green card. That's, a, <laughs> that's like my mom. <laughs> no. Really? Well, she's from South Africa. She jokes <laughs> that the only reason she married my dad was to come here. But 30 <laughs> years later, they're still married, so I don't know. But as Ms. became more prominent, as your, as your name became more prominent from your writing, you became more in demand as a public speaker, which was not something you necessarily would have gravitated towards. What was the solution for you in terms of taking advantage of this opportunity, that, that you know, platform that you now had, while not feeling miserable doing it? How did you get around it? Well, the first solution was doing it with another woman. Mm-hmm. And so I asked a woman named Dorothy Pittman Hughes, who is a child ex-rearing expert, a child care expert, and who has children, and, you know, and who's an Mm African-American woman. I mean, I just thought it made sense that we kind of supplemented each other, and she's fearless, (laughs) right? So we spoke together. Then I did that with other women after she had a baby and wanted to stay home. So I couldn't do it by myself. I was way too scared to do it by myself. But I did really discover what happens when you are in the same space, that as much as I love books and as much as I love movies and the web and everything else, does not happen in the same way. How do you mean? As we are together right now, we can use all five senses. We can empathize with each other. And I did ask a neurologist whether it was possible to produce oxytocin, which is the hormone that allows us to really empathize Mm -hmm. with each other 
that makes us help another human being even if we don't know them, or that floods us when we hold a baby, whether we're men or women, if that was produced on paper or on the screen? And she said, no, actually, you do have to be in the same room. And so I'm very grateful that I got pushed into doing what I feared most, which was public speaking, because I did make that discovery. Yeah, and the the main message at that point was just women's rights are human rights? Or what was there, was there a specific focus of your speeches, things that you, specific things that you were trying to achieve or just raise awareness? Well, there were a lot of specific things. I mean, the, the two of us would just talk about our own lives and the fact that how come women are a cheap labor force on which the, <laughs> you know, the many countries run and how come there are these roles called masculine and feminine when we're all human beings and how come men are made to shorten their lives by trying to be hyper-masculine. You know, we would just talk about all of this and then open up the discussion. And somehow that released people to stand up and say, even in huge audiences, to stand up and say things they would, I think, not say to a therapist or to their family or something. Like that they'd had an abortion or something. Yeah, and, and, and also just where their dreams had gone and why they felt they had no identity unless there was a man standing next to them, you know, and how bad this was for men because men didn't realize how little it mattered which man was standing <laughs> next to them. <laughs> and, and also if it was when it really goes, then somebody on one side of the room ask the question and somebody in the other side of the room because they come from the same city or something answers it. Mm -hmm. And it just is magic, you know, it just turns into a big organizing meeting and you kind of feel like none of you is quite the same as when you came in. So that's what's kept you doing it through the present. It's absolutely. Wow. Right. It's addictive. In those early years, I think that some people were unsure of what to make of you because the argument would go from, from some of them that, who's this person that's being put front and center? Is she being put front and center because of her beauty? Did that grate on you, knowing how hard you were working, that some of these people either couldn't or wouldn't see past the... Yeah, the I, did, I, did, I did worry about it, and I still do. I mean, I still, I always try not to appear by myself yeah. and not to appear in an all-white group or photo or, I, I don't know, because a movement is not about, I mean, a movement is huge and diverse, and I just do my best to try to represent that. But I do remember being rescued by an old woman, probably as old as I am now, who knows, who, <laughs> who, who got up in an audience and said, as, as this was being discussed, yeah. as you and I are yeah. discussing, she said, honey, you know, it's important for somebody to who could play the game and win to say the game isn't worth shit. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> so savvy. I said, oh, thank you. You've given me a purpose in life. <laughs> was it tough, though, to be the target of the people who didn't like what you were saying, where I guess the most famous example would probably be this Leonard Levitt, 1971 Esquire article, She, where he's going after you instead of mm -hmm. the things that you're talking about. You didn't sign up necessarily to be a public figure or a target. You were supporting a message, but you got in the firing line. How did how did that go? That was very painful, yeah. you know, because he was accusing me of just 
attaching myself to one movement after the next, which, you know, social justice movements are connected, but yeah. he, he wasn't seeing it that way. He was accusing me of being opportunistic and insincere and, no, uh, complete with a comic strip. I mean, it was, no, it was painful. One event that happened a few years after that was the National Women's Conference in Houston, which you've called, quote, the most important event nobody knows about, close quote. And I have to admit that I don't know much about it. And I just, when you said that, I wanted to ask you if you would provide me and listeners with why that would be the case. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big statement. Not your fault, (laughs) because the media really didn't cover it very well. Or worse, they covered it as if it were equal to a demonstration against it, which was held across town by anti-feminist right-wing anti-abortion groups. In fact, the conference itself was the result of two years of a conference uh, in every state and every territory that elected delegates. I mean, for instance, in Albany, there were 2,000 women electing delegates from New York State, selecting issues. It was and still is the most representative bunch of 2,000 you know, delegates I've yeah. ever seen by class and race and age and, I mean, Native American, different tribes and nations represented. It was, it was huge. It was huge. And so, so important because it gave a very big, diverse national movement a shared agenda because we had really worked hard over two years to talk about it and talk about the issues and vote on them. And it gave us global connections because it was about the International Women's Year that had been declared by the UN and there were people there from other countries. So it really, really was very important. I think there's a book, another book coming out about it. Hopefully there will be films. Hopefully it will be rediscovered. Yeah. But basically all these years later, a couple decades later in the 90s when you had, I believe, then First Lady Hillary Clinton going to another global conference and saying in front of the world, women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. What does that moment feel like when you see that your work is reverberating to the highest levels of power? No, it was infinitely rewarding because it was a recognition of the connections among women and men globally. You know, I had lived in India, you know, when I first Mm -hmm. got out of college and absorbed the kind of Gandhian bottom-up change that I then didn't yet realize was universal either, you know. But I had met women there who, who, you know, were outstanding activists. And so, I mean, I knew that it was global, but it wasn't visible. And that Hillary stood there and said, women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. Mm really, really made a huge difference. Over the years, you've found many creative ways to share the message of what you've worked for all these years. I don't know that anyone would have guessed that one of those methods would end up being something in collaboration with Vice, because there's always been this assumption that Vice is sort of macho men doing, you know, rough and tumble things, and that was what it was all about. In fact, that is now been thrown on its head by the presence of women, for which 
You've been nominated for your second Emmy. We learned the first one 51 years ago. So congratulations about that. How did this start? It started really due to Shane Smith, I have to say. You know, it was his response that made this possible. We were at a conference together, a sharing of ideas organized by Google, and I was talking about violence against females worldwide and all of its different forms, whether it's domestic violence here or sexualized violence in war zones or the bias against female children that means now in Asia there's a son surplus and a daughter deficit. If you add up all of these forms of violence, there are actually now fewer females on spaceship Earth than males. That blew my mind. And he was very struck by that. And he said, you know, to, you know, we, we have to do something. Let's talk when we get back to New York. So all credit to him. Now, it's true that people were shocked because they thought Viceland was a guy thing. Yeah. And I don't know. We'll have to ask Shane. Maybe people were saying to him, don't get involved with these crazy women. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact was, it was just a, a human response. And to his everlasting credit, he followed through and made it happen. So when, when we finally had a, a rap party in my living room for the 40 or so people who you know worked on these eight documentaries, we made buttons for everybody that said, I put the V in vice. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. That's great. I hope he, I hope he got one. That's, yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> now, the team behind Women, which you just referenced, is certainly at least on camera, all women. I don't. I think behind the scenes, primarily women. Is that just a coincidence, or is that something that was important to you? It was important, especially if, some some of the camera crew were yeah. men, and they were great. I mean, this is not about excluding anybody, mm-hmm. but it was important that female correspondents be asking the questions, because in many situations women would maybe not be so comfortable mm-hmm. talking to male correspondents. And I have to say that Vice found, they found these eight mm-hmm. great women from different cultures, languages, to great correspondents who really, they deserve more coverage than they have had for what a good job they did. Because, you know, the, the physical trials of being in the Congo mm-hmm. or being at the, you know, were very difficult. Asking questions in a way that didn't presume the answer is not easy. And yet they did that, and they did not fail to respond like a person, not yeah. like a uh, automaton. Yeah. You, you know, see they, some emotion, right. yeah. No, they were great, these eight women. So I know that a springing off point for this was the book that you've been talking up for a long time, Sex and World Peace. Was that the specific roadmap that led you to the places like Colombia and the Congo that are highlighted in the first season of Woman? No, we were doing research beyond that because she is talking about, in that very important book, it's demonstrating that violence against females in every major country is the biggest indicator of other violence. However, we were doing specifics and we wanted to make clear that this happened everywhere, that we weren't otherizing, mm-hmm. you know, saying this only in other countries. Right. So here it was mothers in prison in the U.S. In Canada, Canada yeah. it was Native Canadian women. And those were two things that were 
not in the book in, in quite that way. So we were trying to make clear the universality of this problem. How special was it to also go to the White House where you have Joe Biden who's really championed the idea of taking on the issue of campus sexual assaults, which seems to have really come to the forefront in a lot of people's minds recently. You're standing there in the White House with your TV series talking to the vice president of the United States. I mean, is this a place that if somebody had said to you when you first moved to New York and got involved with these things 50 years ago, would you have believed that this could have led you there? No. (laughs) No. It just seems like kind of amazing. And he and Biden also was a champion of the Violence Against Women Act. Yes. Altogether, which is, you know, bigger than violence against sexualized violence on campus. You know, I think that this administration altogether, I'm very grateful to. I think this is the first time, even more than the Kennedy administration, Mm -hmm. which of course was cut tragically short, but even more so, I feel like there are two people, I would say both Michelle uh, and Barack Obama, who understand, who really understand. Yeah. How cool was it to learn that this project that you poured a lot into, which begins each episode with a montage highlighting your work, which may serve the purpose. There may be people that are discovering your work through this series to then see it recognized with an Emmy nomination. Mm-hmm. Was that pretty you know, gratifying? It's, it's, it's great in every way because age-wise, I'm probably a shock to Vice. <laughs> <laughs> You're broadening their demo. That's it. That's as positive. And, and I, on the other hand, have this very strong feeling about young activists and journalists and so on that I was just waiting for some of my friends to be born. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, because most of your friends are a lot younger, you yeah, said, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, most of the people I work with are very much younger. That's great. Which has led me to an important understanding, which is that we're always ourselves, regardless yeah. of what age yeah, we are. Yeah. More or less experienced, but we're always this unique person inside. So in, in every way, I feel that it's a enlargement, you know, because... It brings empathy and information to a much bigger group of people. It allows the women in these eight countries who are suffering an unspeakable kinds of violence in many cases to know they're not alone. It allows the viewer to see and empathize and actually do something about it because there are activist groups at at the end of each episode. No, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, and, and somehow, <laughs> I don't know, in my life, I, there's the comparison of Ms. Magazine, okay? So that, to me, was having to fell a forest to produce a toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> this is putting in a toothpick worth of effort because, it, you know, it's been, it just is like it was meant to be. Yeah. You know? So it's happened. And because Amy Richards, my colleague who you know, did a, a lot of this and because of all the people advice, it it just was meant to be. It just was meant to be and it's happened. And I'm so, so grateful for it because it's almost as hard to see suffering and know that it's invisible as it is to suffer and know that you are invisible. Oh. Well, with our remaining time, I hope I can just ask for your 
take on sort of some big picture stuff just about the <laughs> situation of the around the world, different things around the world today. I'm going to start in Hollywood because we are the Hollywood Reporter. I have mm-hmm. to ask you, today the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is investigating gender discrimination in Hollywood where women account for a single-digit percentage of filmmakers and Obviously, forever, it's been an issue that as women get older, there are fewer and fewer opportunities in the business. Do you feel that things like that, which may be the result of distasteful or biased behavior, does it need to be prosecuted in order to change, or can it, basically, how do you think that Mm -hmm. will change in Hollywood? You know, there's a great Latin American novelist whose name escapes me right now, who said, The people can withstand fire and flood and danger, but if the law is unjust, they go crazy. (laughs) So I think we need to know there is justice somewhere, even if it's distant. And this is the purpose of the laws of our country, and entertainment and, and media are great sources of employment and information. We we both need the jobs and we need the participation so we know the whole story. Yeah. Another Hollywood-related thing, how do you feel when you see so many young women who hold in very high regard folks like the Kardashians, where basically rose to prominence through a sex videotape that was leaked or came out somehow, and it's largely about making money through sexualizing things. Mm -hmm. Does it matter how you get to a platform you know, now they might use it for, for good, but is it troubling to you how, in that case, somebody got to it? I think anytime we get to success by conforming, not being our unique selves, it's, it's not what it could and should be. I, I understand, you know, it isn't something to criticize because it isn't the individuals who are at fault, it's the culture that says you are rewarded for your outsides, not your insides. Mm -hmm. But I regret it, and it's painful. It's not quite as painful as the Housewives series. I was going to ask that next. I (laughs) mean, that's perhaps the most painful. (laughs) It's like, are we going backwards with with that? I mean, there's, and it's not one show, it's a whole franchise. It's it's the closest to a a female minstrel show that I can imagine. Interesting. And again, I, I understand why, because those women are looking for a way to start their business or get to be known to have a, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's not to criticize the people who are in the game, it's to to change the game. Yeah, you just wonder, though, if they realize how much work has been done by people like you to create an environment where they don't have to do that, and now it's like just mind-blowing. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Right. There's a situation right now, I don't know if you've heard about, but it's quickly become the talk of Hollywood. There's a filmmaker named Nate Parker, who is a man who 17 years ago was tried for and found not guilty of the rape of a college classmate. He's now written, directed, and stars in a movie that is expected to be a big Oscar contender, The Birth of a Nation. But as details of the case have resurfaced recently, some people are saying they will boycott the film or not vote for it or as a result of what they've learned. If a person is found by the American legal system not guilty, as was the case here, should he be allowed to move on with his life and career, or is it legitimate to revisit this in the way that it's being Mm -hmm. revisited? 
You know, I don't have a depth of knowledge of this. I've just, you know, read what's in the online or even not all of that yeah. probably. It, it, it sounds as if he has taken this very seriously. Not only was there a process in the past, but he is not making light of this as others who have, you know, in situation of, of sexual assault. So I really feel like this is something that is not to be commented on by me or decided by me. It's, 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 I just don't, I don't know enough. Yeah, I'm sure. not there, you know, to, I think to we're know all learning, so. what's, what's authentic and what isn't authentic. Yeah. But I hope that, as in the case of Anita Hill, yeah. for instance, the country is learning to take these kinds of assaults seriously. Yeah. Who have been the most important men in your life and in the service of the feminist cause? Ah, oh, well, there are so many. I yeah. mean, you know, you know, I think in a lot of ways, if you could have privilege and refuse it, you're more virtuous than people who don't have the choice. So, you know, they're just a lot of men. I mean, one, uh, Dr. McQuaggy is very much part of this series. He's a, a doctor in the in the Congo who has established a hospital, invented all kinds of surgeries to put women back together again act after these brutal sexual assaults. I mean, I think in a way, it, it's like the battle against apartheid. Yeah, really. Yeah. Right? He, he and there are many heroes like this. I believe, if I recall correctly, that you had once said and sort of correctly anticipated that it would be even harder for a woman than for a person of color to become president. What's your outlook now, four months from August, September, October, November, ahead of this presidential election? Do you, what do you think is going to happen? Well, you know, I didn't say that because I think there's, there's not a competition of tears, if you know what I mean. I mean yeah. Injustice is injustice. Right. It's just that I think because most of us are raised by women, we are likely to associate female authority with childhood and perhaps feel it's not appropriate to public life just because of our experiences. I think that's changing, though, mm -hmm. you know, as we see more, more and more diverse women in, in public life. In this particular case, in this election, she has to win. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, though, are you enthusiastic about her, or would you be in favor of anyone except Trump? No, 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 no. Yeah. I am very enthusiastic about yeah. her, absolutely. She is a miracle to me that she can withstand the amount of distortion and criticism and hatred and trivialization that she has endured. Really, really, really remarkable. As for Trump, you know, he is a fraud. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, we here in New York know that he is not a successful <laughs> businessman. Right. He is a successful con man. If, if he had just invested his inheritance, he'd be richer than now. He's gone bankrupt so many times. Is he a misogynist? Is he a threat to women? You know, I don't want to dignify him with the idea that he could be a threat. He's so yeah. foolish. <laughs> <laughs> when you see people like Sarah Palin enthusiastically supporting him or now Kellyanne Conway becoming his campaign manager, do you feel like feminism has been perverted or forgotten in these cases? No, I feel, I feel in a way they're just very useful 
examples of the fact that it's not about biology, it's about consciousness. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, there's always somebody, look, there's Clarence Thomas, yeah. who also goes against the majority views and needs of his community, as does Sarah Palin, as does this campaign manager. You know, it just proves that it's not inborn, right. it's consciousness. You had said once before, and I love this, that quote, it's very disheartening to confront someone who looks like you and behaves like them, close quote, <laughs> which seems to fit those folks. Why have you not run for political office? Does it just not appeal to you? Can you be more effective doing the way, what you do I, now? I, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think my job is to make the people who run for office look reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. What is your guiltiest pleasure? Like, something that would really surprise people. Does Gloria Steinem like the NFL or, you know, something random that people just would never expect? I, no, I'd, I have to say I don't love the NFL because <laughs> I went to a big Midwestern high school, which was football crazy. Right. You know, so I, I kind of got inoculated. Right, that was enough. <laughs> I, I don't know. I love... I love old-fashioned disco dancing. Do you think that really? counts? Yeah, that's yeah. great. Where do you do I'm it? I'm hooked on ice cream. Well, <laughs> sometimes I, I do it. I just get up from my computer and turn on ice cream. <laughs> the Bee Gees? And so, sometimes I go, I, not often enough do I go dancing, but sometimes. That's great. I also love to tap dance, which probably oh. is more fun to do than to watch. That's great. What has been your biggest mistake? Oh, gosh, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've... I've made a ton of mistakes, but I would say I would characterize the biggest group of mistakes as doing over again things I already knew how to do because they were useful or I thought they might be helpful or I needed approval or all kinds of mm -hmm. reasons. But instead of doing things I didn't know how to do and, and pushing myself more, and that includes writing, not writing enough. Interesting. What has been your greatest accomplishment? I don't think I know. I mean, I say that because you don't have a global view of yourself. That just doesn't <laughs> happen. So, I mean, the, the other day I was in a hospital to take <laughs> a test that wasn't important, mm -hmm. but, you know, and there was a guy delivering food to the office, right? So he was an African-American man in his 50s. And he said, he, he knew who I was. He said how glad he was to meet me, you know, how much he felt we were doing the same kind of work. He even knew who I'd been, he knew all kinds yeah. of things. It was like instant <laughs> recognition and f friendship. Yeah. And that is a gift. If people know what you care about and you know what they care about, it gives us companionship, it gives us a feeling that we're not alone. I don't know, it's in those instantaneous moments that I feel just the most totally, I, I don't know, lucky, knocked out, glad to be alive. It's just, it's just present in that moment. Yeah. How do you think your life would have been different if instead of having that abortion, you'd instead had the child, married the fiance who you were kind of running away from, and led that trajectory, what would your life have been? It wouldn't have been terrible, you know, and I, I would like to think I would have been able to be strong enough to still become myself, but I'm not sure I would have had the strength. 
And then final question, you're now 82. You seem to be working as hard as ever. You are, as you're seeing with encounters like the one you just described, clearly making a difference as much as ever. What keeps you in the fight and what for you remains to be accomplished? Well, what keeps me in it is just it's infinitely interesting. <laughs> it's angering, it's all kinds of things, but it just is alive and vital and connecting, and I just can't imagine anything more rewarding. I just feel incredibly, incredibly lucky. I wish I could say to my 10-year-old self, it's going to be great. <laughs> It has been. Uh, well, so thank you so much. It's really a privilege. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.